Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to a curated episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon. And in this episode, we've curated some of the best takeouts from three different investors, two venture capitalists and one private equity investor. First up is Neeraj Agrawal, who is a general partner at Battery Ventures. Neeraj has invested in many companies which completed an IPO, including Bizarre Voice, Guidewire, Marketo, Nutanix, Omniture, RealPage, Wayfair, and Sprinkler. And Neeraj has had many other companies acquired, A Place for Mom, AppDynamics, Brighttree, Chef, Ops Genie, and Glassdoor. Listen in on some good advice from Neeraj on how he views his investments. Looking back on all those investments that you made in startups, and I don't, you don't need to name company names or anything, but what do you think of the, let's say, top three items that have separated the successful companies you've invested in from the not successful companies? Is it is it product? Is it sales, marketing, finance, the TAM, competitive product life cycle? What is it? Yeah, John, it's a great question. There's, there's a lot of dimensions that go into investing. You know, at a high level, I think of there being as four key dimensions in making that decision. First is market. Second is team. Third is technology. And the fourth is the deal itself. You know, kind of what is the, the terms of the deal? And within market, that includes things like competitive landscape, market size. And in the venture world, there's a, there's a lot of debate around, hey, is it really the market or is the team? What's the ratio? Clearly, you need some combination of both of those. And I will tell you that in my experience, it's probably a little bit more market. But if you want to have a great outcome, you need great marketing, and great team to come together at the right time. And, you know, a lot of folks will talk about, oh, how big is this market? Um, and I generally found that that's actually, it's an interesting question, but it's not really predictive of success. What you really want to know is what is the inflection point in this market? When is this going to happen? And can I get, can I see my way getting to 50 to 100 million in scale? If I can get there, I can figure out what to do from there. You know, I think about it, climbing the mountaintops. Yeah. The, and, and the challenge is uh, often is if you invest too early, you know, you've got a good idea, but you run out of money before the inflection point happens. And if you invest too late, somebody else captures the market. And so having a sense of like the timing is really important. And like most things in life, you know, luck has a lot to do with it. Here I question Neeraj on the power of the product or the power of the sales force in early stage companies? Well, just going back to, you know, the original question, if you, have you seen like in some of the companies that were successful or not successful, like the product carry the salespeople or the sales yeah, people great question. The product, or the product was okay. The sales force was okay, but the market was so big. They kind of grew, you know, or hung on to the market and, you know, kind of looked like they were successful. Have you seen some of that? Yeah, John, this is a great question. And, and, and this is also an area that's evolved a lot in my 20 years. Um, and you know, I'll give you, I'll, I'll kind of take a step back here. So if you look at in the, I'd say, client server era uh, and before of software, you could have an okay product and great sales and build a great outcome. And over, main, over like decades, and part of it was those companies grew and they acquired other products that were never really integrated with each other. But the distribution, the sales team was so good at selling it, they could sell product one and product two and keep, keep the dream going, you know? Right. And so I would say for that wave of software, sales uh, processes were, were really critical. Like, you know, look at a company like Oracle, I would argue, may not have had the best database, but they won based on sales execution. And, 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 uh, You've seen a lot of a lot of successes. You know, I've been involved in companies that had okay product, but had great sales and it made it happen. 
the the shift really happened around the cloud where when software was being sold in a way that was being uh, you had to renew it to the same extent. So you had to have real value being delivered. The idea of shelfware no longer could exist. You couldn't hide around that. So sales teams were able to sell, but maybe if it wasn't used, it was still okay. Um, now that's not the case. So your, your minimum product level has increased dramatically. Like if you do not have a top one or two product in a space, in the medium term, I think a sales team will have a hard time executing. They need a good enough product, but they still need to be excellent at sales. Now, you, you actually have something happening that's a little bit different where sometimes a great product will help a company get to 50, 100 million with okay sales. And growth covers up a lot of sins mm-hmm. and a lot of operating uh, uh, cadence in a business. And mm-hmm. for you, the sales leaders that might be listening, usually when you're growing really quickly, is the best time to ask the question, what's really not working? Because everyone's high-fiving, you know, things are great, going to President's Club. But I can guarantee you, I've seen it now so many times that the foundation is being built at that moment. And when the bumps come, the foundation is not strong and it crumbles quickly. Yeah, and so, so you need good product and, and you need great sales. If, you, if great sales didn't matter, you wouldn't have these issues. You wouldn't have these bumps where companies all of a sudden hit this massive air pocket. Um, and so they need to build the right kind of sales processes and discipline. And ultimately, great companies are built on great product and great sales. You can kind of fake it for a while now on, on the sales side. But um, the, longer, the longer you wait to put in the fundamentals, the harder it is to do later. And the more, um, I would say, the more of uh, a near pocket there is for a company when they put it in. Yeah. And is the reason that you look for such a large TAM going to the last point or last question that I asked where... The product was okay. The sales were okay, but they were in such a huge market that was growing so fast. They kind of got pulled along and then they looked like it was a successful company or successful outcome at some point. Yeah. I, I think it's fair to say that the, because the, first of all, every company from within looks a little messier than, than people think. Like every company's got issues, right? And so like, um, you know, everyone's executing. If you're executing well, you might execute an eight, not a 10. And like other people executed a six, but the so there's always some issues that the large TAM and the right inflection points pull you along really nicely, and so that covers up some of the mistakes, but it won't it won't cover up for the foundational mistakes that will be exposed, you know, down the road. That's what you got to get right. In this discussion, Niraj is reflecting on the importance of the CEO on the overall success of the company. Um, you know, I'm, I'm rapidly approaching my 50th birthday, which is hard to believe. But when I started at 27, the average founder was probably in their mid-30s. And so as I've gotten older, closer to 50, the average founder is actually getting younger. They're now in their late 20s, right. often very technical. Um, maybe sometimes I've never managed another human being. It's really interesting to think about that. Like the great product, great technical instincts. Um, and usually they have very good product instincts to, you know, over, over time but their team building instincts are relatively raw. Um, their hiring instincts are, are raw and they need, to, they need to develop in that area. And so what I would say, the, the lessons I've learned now are, are people who can really grow into the CEO role is really important. And, and what I mean by that is, I wrote a blog post on it called Founder to CEO Transitions. You know, when, when, a, when a founder, usually a co-founder becomes a CEO, they're the CEO because they started the business. They're not the CEO because anyone would actually hire them to be a CEO. And as I said, many times they never even managed another community. Right. But their ability to learn on that side and, and, and also have the appreciation that, wow, actually managing people is a skill in itself. Leading people, holding them accountable, getting 150% out of somebody is a skill. Frankly, I don't, I don't think I have it. I know Jim, you've got it, right? But that's a skill that they can develop to the best of their abilities. And I'd say that's the thing I look for now is, hey, can this person... They can get us to like 20 to 50, but I'm usually betting on that person to get to hundred, hundreds of revenue. And right. that requires them managing a 500 or a thousand person organization. And can you see them grow into that ability over time? So what do you look for? How do you figure that out? Right. I look for empathetic leaders. I look for people who are coachable. I look at the quality of questions they ask. At some point, they need to turn on their HR muscle when I be recruiting and uh, leading a team. That's yeah, not an easy skill. Definitely on recruiting, yeah. Sometimes that's, that's what I look for now. Yeah, yeah. And on the flip side of that question, without mentioning any companies, 
What'd you learn from your greatest disappointment where you thought, oh, this is going to be a grand slam home run. And then all of a sudden the thing, you know, tanked on you at some point. What would you learn from that? Was it just the same thing? With the same I would say it's, it's a little bit in the same. In order. I did two things. One is um, sometimes there's two types of failures in the venture world. One is like you bet on something and like the market never really happened. Like, you know, an extreme example could be like, hey, let's go mine asteroids in space. Like, okay, that market never happened. It may happen. But anyone who invested in that thing, like, never, they haven't made money. Um, you know, Virgin won a clean tech many years ago. No one really made money. Like, the whole category did. Can you feel, okay, look, we were wrong about market. And it's, you don't actually lose sleep about that decision as much. The one that hurts the most is when you invested in a space and you might have picked a company who at the time was number one or you thought they were number one. And then some company that hasn't even started yet, somehow comes up and beats them. And you're like, oh my God, we were right about the thesis. Mm-hmm. We were early and we still didn't win. You know, We were number one or number two in the market. And if you're not number one or two at this point, you're basically wasting your time and you, might, you should go do something else. You know? right. um, and so that's, those are the ones that are really hard. And, and the reason you often don't end up being number one or two is a few key decisions that the founder ultimately needs to make around product instincts, like architectural instincts on, hey, let's build it this way, not that way. And also a couple of key hiring decisions around senior executives, where every mistake sets you back like 12 or 18 months. And as you're competing, every company is making a few mistakes. But the difference between number one and number two and number three is really one or two less mistakes. In this exchange, Neeraj gives insight into technical founders' perspective on the sales function. What type of advice do you find giving that you're giving to technical founders around just the, the, the game of sales? Yeah, great question. No, I, I um, many years ago I wrote a blog called T two D three that talked about a growth yeah. and in it I mentioned I think there's a there's a magic moment for a company when a founder is actually not involved in sales. And you might be like, wait, what is that? How could that be? Like, you know, why is that not happening? Why would you want that? And I say, look, to have a scalable scalable company, you need a system, right? And you need to be able to translate you know, what's in a founder's mind to mere mortals, you know, who can repeat the key parts and make, make, and make the sale happen. Um, and I call it hero selling because a lot of founders will come in at the last minute, make the deal happen. They can, they can, they can articulate a vision that is very intoxicating for a potential buyer. And like, okay, I get it. I think this person is amazing. I'm going to bet. It. And that's, that might need to happen in that first year or two. But what yeah. you really want is when, Great reps, and I actually don't even think you're great reps. I call it your your B reps. When your B rep, or even your newly ramped rep, when they can start producing, then you've got something that's that that's scalable. Yeah. And so, if you can articulate that, then you say, okay, wait a minute. Then really, this is all about sales enablement and trying to make sure, as a founder, I'm not carrying the the quarter. If I'm carrying the quarter, it's only a matter of time that we hit the, the, until we hit the wall. And so that requires systems and, and uh, translation of what's in their mind. And you, normally what it requires, honestly, is to dumb it all down. Like you got to get it simple, straightforward. Here's how I do it. And then it's repeatable. So, um, but it's, it takes an appreciation. And, and the thing you said also about like, you know, founders think generally if they build it, like people will buy it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think, I think McMahon taught me this. I think he might've said no software has ever been purchased without a champion. I think you might have said that to me, John. Yeah. Years ago. yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's an appreciation. Like, oh, okay, that's really how sales happen. You actually have to convince a champion first, and then they convince other people in the org. And so there's a human aspect to this. It's a, you know, and product emotion skews this a little bit. There's a little bit of this happening now where, where people aren't acting self, but to grow it, you still need to have the champion and the people to expand. And so I think the, the light bulb of understanding like the role of sales and the importance of sales is really important for technical founders. And, you know, I would say maybe 50% of them really appreciate it. And it's a very high number. Don't ever appreciate it. And I think those are the ones that have a hard time scaling their businesses. Yeah. I think they think that everybody's going to buy their, their product or their baby, so to speak. Yeah. And maybe someday that'll happen, but in a startup, you have to like pick your fights 
where you're going to be most successful and where the product's going to drive the highest customer value so that you can, in exchange, get the highest monetary value. And too many of them, from what I've seen, take more of a shotgun approach to everybody's going to sell my product instead of like a rifle approach to where is our best fit and where am I going to get the highest productivity out of my sales force? Nearish highlights the importance of the sales function in a tough economy where product purchases are highly scrutinized. Yeah. And John, the other thing I'd add is, you know, um, we have to think about the backdrop, right? So we've had a bull market for 12 years. And so a lot of these folks have never seen tough sales cycles where you do need to justify why am I doing this project and not, not the other project. Mm. And when, when experimental budgets are growing like they have in the last 10 years, a lot of things get tried out, right? In this environment that we're entering, like you now, the art of sales is more important than it was, you know, a few years ago because there's going to be scrutiny in all these decisions. Mm-hmm. And so having somebody who can connect the dots between business problem, the value property or product, an ROI, dealing with CFO scrutiny, that's now gone from like, okay, it was kind of a nice to have to like super important right now. And so I think... um you know, the, the importance of overall sales process and foundation has just grown. Super important, even for renewals, right? When yeah. <laughs> If I'm trying to cut costs as a CEO, I'm going down a list of everything that we were purchasing and it's going to yeah. get renewed. And I'm going to come ask somebody, tell me about the value you're getting out of this product. And if they start to stumble, blah, 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 psh, I'm cutting it. It's gone. It's not getting a renewal. Here's an interesting topic. The rule of 40, which Niraj evaluates for his potential investments. But Niraj also looks at companies' growing revenues above or below 30% in the next 12 months. So, Niraj, let's talk. Um, is a popular rule of 40, yeah. which you know of, but you know, for our listeners, maybe they don't know what it is. It's basically that a SaaS company's combined growth rate and profit margin should exceed 40%. Now, you said that you prefer looking at, let's call it 30%, you know, next 12 months revenue growth and grouping different companies based upon whether they're above or below that 30% NTM, you know, revenue growth. Can you educate our audience on two things? One, why is the rule of 40 so popular? And then why do you like to also look at the 30% NTM revenue growth factor? Yeah, sure. And, and um, so rule of 40 is, is like, actually, it's one of the uh, most elegant ways to think about the trade-off between growth and EBITDA. I used to, I used to tell people way back when, is like every movie basically comes down to like, we're on the spectrum of like growing really fast or generating a lot of profit. Do you want to set the dial for the company? And that's yeah. based on the market opportunity. You know, can you be number one? You got to win your market still, right? So... And so you take your growth rate percentage um, and you take your EBITDA percentage or, or free cash flow percentage of different versions, add them up, and ideally they're running 40. So you can grow 50% and lose 10%. You could grow 30% and make 10%. Or what salesforce.com historically over many, many years, they've grown 20% and 20% profit. And that's a lot of what rule 40 came. But 2020 was a nice spot in the middle to land for you know, medium growth companies. Um, and so... And what sometimes happens in venture, companies' growth rates slow down. They start growing 30%. They, they hope they could get back up to 50%. Often doesn't happen, but they're still willing to burn 20, 30, 40%. Right. And when cost of capital is cheap, they're like, ah, it's okay. But now when cost of capital is not cheap, you really got to look at that investment and say, are, are we really going to be able to inflect growth rate? Are we going to get to 40% growth and zero? Or do we need to start thinking in our heads like, hey, listen, we might need to be a 20, 20, and 20 company. And the private equity teams have all figured this out that basically all software companies can kind of get there. And if the management team, the car management team doesn't want to do it, we'll go do the hard work and figure it out. Um, and we'll buy this company. And, and it's unfortunate for the existing investors because that value is getting transferred to the private equity guys. So um, it's an important framework to have. It's a good framework. It keeps people uh, grounded and disciplined on what other companies can do and what's possible in their own business. Yeah. The framework that I've added to it is really, it's not, uh, it's not a uh, uh, competitive framework. It actually just says that within rule of 40, there's actually four different zones um, within the rule of 40. And 
that you could be growing. Um, it, it kind of separates out the 30% growers and the less than 30% growers and those that are free cash flow positive and those are not. And it shows up kind of a, a map of those. And, and then it really digs into it. Well, those people that are actually growing above 30% in free cash flow positive, what, what do they look like? You know, what is their, and a metric that I really like um, is revenue per employee or ARR per employee. I think there's a lot of um, value in companies really tracking that to get a sense of the just high level efficiency. So you can look at companies that are, that are top quartile in, in my four zones, and you'll see they might run ARR per employee at four to $500,000 per employee. And the ones that are in the least in the fourth quartile, the worst quartile might be running at 200 to 300 of ARR per employee. And so just understanding how you got to grow your ARR per employee over time is a really important thing. I think for founders and leadership teams to understand that Will 40 is a good metric overall, John. And I think more and more people and more boardrooms are really talking about it right now. Yeah, especially right now, right? Because like you said, the cost of capital and, and maybe taking that gross rate down a little. Next up is Dave Tiley, a private equity investor. Early in his career, Dave Tiley was a serial entrepreneur. He started and sold three different companies, IronCAD, Visionary Design Systems, and Avanti. Then Dave traveled to the other side of the table. Instead of being backed by venture capital companies or running his own company, Dave joined a global private equity fund named Riverside. And Dave is currently at Aligned Capital Partners, another private equity firm focused on software and tech-enabled services. For many of our young listeners and even some of our older listeners, there's a little confusion between what a venture capital firm does versus a private equity firm. So I started by asking Dave to educate us on the major differences between the two. Sure, John, I'd be glad to. And, and again, it's from my perspective, so I don't mean to have all the answers, but you know, certainly live both of these paths. And um, listen, on the venture capital side, which maybe more are familiar with, right? Those are early stage companies, maybe pre-revenue, maybe for sure pre-earnings. And there's a concept, an idea, and we hope there's a market behind it, right? It's big bets, right? You're hoping on maybe one out of 10 succeed. Um, it's usually a group of VCs go in, right? So they're all leveraged their bets. And then private equity, but just like venture, there's a lot of different types of funds where they focus, right? There's turnaround funds, there, there's growth funds. Our company, Align Capital, we're a growth fund. But the biggest difference is, is these companies already have revenue, they already have earnings, they already have proven in the market that there's something there. And for us as growth investors in the private equity space, we're looking for a company we think, hey, they got something special, but maybe with some more expertise, maybe with some more jet fuel, right? we can come alongside them, partner with them to accelerate the growth curve um, and build a really special company on the other end. So the difference is we're the only one at the table, right? So we're like all in. Um, so it gets 100% of our focus. And where for a venture, they're successful, maybe one out of 10 hit it big. We really can't have more than 10 to 15% that don't make it. Um, mm. There should, if, if we have no companies that ever fail, we may be not taking enough risk, but if we have more 10 to 15%, then we're not doing something right. So I think those are the biggest things that I've seen. So it's kind of already proven uh, for where we work, which I love, they've got something that works. And this is all about how can we come together um, and really align and row together to create something special and bigger together. Right. So to, to, um, to say it again, it's basically that the VCs, are spreading the risk of the investment amongst multiple venture capital firms as the company starts to grow. And PE firms, as you called it, you're all in. You own the entire, you come in and own the entire company. Yeah, I and mean, the approach is different because we really roll up our sleeves. I know for my team, right? <laughs> we're, we're our whole idea is be a servant leader and help these CEOs in anything we can do to help them be better each and every day. Um, so, yeah, that's the primary difference that I see. What about the board makeup? Like if you go into a, a venture capital backed firm, you know, usually there's the seed investor and and they may yeah. bring on maybe one other like operations type board member. And then as they grow, when people put money into the company, 
they typically want to have a board seat. It's not that they always give them a board seat, but they, they right. want to have a board seat. Yep. And then when you go and invest in a company, typically there probably is already a board makeup. And, and what typically happens to that board? That board in our in our model would go away, right? Because that got rewarded for whatever it is that we're paying to partner with them, right? And now it's time for the 2.0 version of that company. So who would be on the board going forward would be the CEO for sure. There might be another founder, you know, perhaps that could also be. There would be someone on my team. So we go in, the operating partner goes in as the chairman of the board in our model. And then we usually have the investment uh partner who led the investment is on the board. And then we look for two outside board members. And it really depends on the deal in terms of what we think we're going to do in the early stages. So if it is a big revenue play, who can bring some juice to help us, you know, as we build and scale sales, or it could be a marketing thing. It could be some relationships. So we try to bring people on those two seats that would add value for that specific company for that specific journey. Right. So the, and then going back again, where where VCs may go raw in a seed investment or they may come in during the growth or scale stage, you're going in when companies are basically fully mature. And that could be how many years typically they've been in business, five years, 10 years, 20 years or all the above. Yeah, John, let me just push back on one word when you say sure. fully mature. Um, the way we look at the world at Align is we embrace good to great in everything we do. So when we partner with a company, they've already done something really well, right? And they get rewarded for that, for that stage. But to reward our investors in the next tranche, that 2.0 version, we got to radically improve the company. So we've got to kind of embrace that good to great. So in every area, we think there's opportunities to be better. And, and that's the fun of our job. If we're not getting better each and every day in every phase of the business that we think somebody else is, and, and that's kind of our fun, then we're not playing our best foot forward for our employees, for our shareholders, right? And our investors. Yeah. So what so, you're doing is you're going in and looking at almost each and every operation of the business. And then you're deciding, you know, can I streamline these operations to take this company to the next level? Is that fair? Absolutely. And you're just trying to optimize it to take it to the next level. Because as you know, as a, as you build companies to get to 20 million is one thing, but to get to 50 and then 100, you know, they're just different stages and different steps. And there's a different playbook really for each. Now, listen, we don't have it all perfect. So please, I hope everyone's hearing that. Then we discussed the different views on an exit strategy with Dave. Do you feel like private equity companies have a different exit strategy than venture capital firms? Yeah. And that's for me, the hardest part about this business, right? Because you've known me for a long time, right? I, I uh, my dad taught me to dance with the one that brought you. And in these cases, you get close with these leadership teams, right? Yeah. And, but someday there's going to be another transition. And, and so that just, we're just clear with people, right? There will be a sale of the company at the other end. So we just acknowledge and put it out there. But we just kind of put it out there, right? Because at the end of the day, we're about building a great company. Because if you do that, every option is available to you. But that's a little bit weird for me and for our team, right? Because you, you, you know, you know it like a band of brothers. You go into something together, right. uh, and it's all in kind of thing. And then so at the at the end, you know, there is going to be another owner to that business. So part of our job is to get that company also ready for that next 3.0 version, right? And some of the things that we do, I think, are unique to them, and I think that. That's why they like to partner with a line. And that could that could that also be an IPO? Could you take them public? It could be, you said it could be basically an MA event, right? It's or it could it be another yeah. liquidity event. Yeah. It, listen, it could be an IPO. I hadn't seen it happen at Riverside and it hasn't happened here at a line. Uh, okay. We have one that maybe is possible. Uh, but normally we've had six exits so far, right? We're, we're six years old and, you know, a third of those have been to a strategic and then the rest to kind of PE back. Our job is really to prepare them for the larger PE funds that want to then go scale it again right kind of thing. So that's really the path we're on, but many times strategics who are sometimes are also private equity backed, right? As well, right? Uh, they like what we have built so far. In this segment, Cap asks Dave whether the focus for companies is on growth or on earnings. 
Yeah, no, and it's 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 brought up a lot of thoughts. So I'll, I'll be really quick. Now, Moran, I got fired from my last company because I was too focused on earnings, and we were growing at you know a hundred percent. But I was told that that wasn't, you know, I was focused too much on earnings. And it was like, well, that didn't make sense to me. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to do both, right? And and I think with the economy where we are today, clearly, you know, you're going to have to do both, right? Whether it's PE or whether it's even venture. And now less so maybe in venture still. But in PE, it's always been a mix. And that's a really good question, John, because I've been a guy that's been trying to teach the private equity folks that I've been with, it's not just all about EBITDA, right? It's when you have earnings, you know, and revenue growing together, that's when you drive outsized returns. And I've been blessed to have really strong outsized returns. And so what I, that's what that's taught me is if you do both well, um, you're going to get rewarded in any market, by the way, but clearly in the market going forward, you're going to have to have earnings if you want to get a higher valuation. But what our whole operating premise is around and our, we have an operating rhythm and a line, as you've probably guessed, um, it, it's doing both. And, and I think you have to do both to be a disciplined business, to be prepared no matter what happens, right? Um, because you don't want to be at the hands of someone else. Like if you're so leveraged and you don't have enough EBITDA to pay for that, well, that's a problem, right? So we look at both. But I think private equities also learned to be fair because that was more EBITDA multiples. And it still really is. But you you hear a lot more about ARR multiples too. And it's 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 a process, right? So I think it's a balance where both are kind of going to the middle where we're going to see that, hey, you know, both of these things are important. Does that help? Uh, it does. I think I think you're absolutely right. We asked Dave about the key parameters of investing in a private company. When you look at companies today, what are some of the key parameters that you're looking for when you're investing in a private company? You know, I think you mentioned uh, management teams and and how important that is. If you'll talk a little bit about that and then other key components that you look for. Well, first off, we have kind of our four segments that we try to focus most of our time in, right? So the first one, software and tech-enabled services. Um, the second one, the second one is uh, financial consulting or professional services. Then industrial services we have, right? And then specialty manufacturing and distribution. So I know those are broad, but those are the four we kind of go after. It's not to say we wouldn't do one outside that, but most of them are in that sector. That's what we focus on uh, as a, from a sector perspective so that we can be a better, more informed investor. So listen, first off, you do look at, hey, how has the company performed, right? And there's no question, uh, because if they haven't performed, we probably wouldn't be talking to them, right? And we probably look at, I don't know, I should know this number, over 2,000 companies a year. And, and then we probably buy four platform companies and probably another 25 to 30 add-ons, you know, to those platform companies a year. So we look at a lot of companies. So we're looking for, is there something special there, right? Is the offering have something special, right? Um, do you think, hey, that, that's got legs to it, right? And then you map all the things going on around it, right? Whether it be the economy, whether it be trends, whether it be, you know, focus shift, and you see, hey, because it's a lot easier to swim with the current, right, than swim upstream. So you look for that kind of thing to say, do we think over the course of these next couple of years, is this business going to be easier or harder? And, and easy may not be the right word, but you know what I mean? It's like, hey, there's going to be more need for the, what this company provides versus it's going to get harder. So it's all around that sustainability of those of that revenue and earnings growth that we're looking for. And I think the thing we've learned, John and John, and you probably know this, it's it just comes down to the people, though, are the most important thing. It's, it's, it's that team. And is it that team focused? And are they rowing together? And in our model, you got to embrace that good to great, right? So it can't be about, you know, hey, um, not afraid to be honest with each other and say, that dog ain't hunting kind of thing, right? Well, we got to relook at this. We owe that, right? Um to all of our employees, to all of our investors, that we want to maximize this opportunity um, and be great, right? So, and not everyone's like that. And that's okay. I think what we're doing is doing a better job of defining who we are in our operating rhythm so that companies can know what they're getting into. So upfront in the due diligence process, we're figuring that out. And, and we tell them, hey, if that's not who you are, 
please tell us because there's a lot of money out there. There's a lot of ways to make money. We're not going to change you know, who we are um, and you shouldn't either for you. So let's just be honest with each other, right? As we go through that dating process of which a deal um, is really, right? Where everyone's kind of putting their best foot forward. But we're trying to be as honest as we can of who we are because if you get the, if the dynamics aren't right with the leadership and the team, boy, it's hard and it's just not much fun to be honest. Cap asked Dave about things to look for when interviewing the leadership team. There's some great takeaways here for any of us doing interview. Dave dives into who the person is, what defines success for that person, who are they when things become tough. And based upon what they tell Dave, he now looks for the proof points or evidence points that support what they told Dave. Finally, if he's interviewing the CEO for proof points, He's looking for focus and trust amongst the CEO's team. So, Dave, you are so good at, you know, really understanding the dynamics of what that culture of that leadership team really is. What are the fruits of that leadership team? I want you to think about our listeners for just a second, because regardless of private equity or or investment, if you were just telling people like, What are the things to look out for? These are the things that you really, really like about when you see a leadership team that does these things. That's a really good company to go work for. When you see a leadership team doing these three things, those are red flags. Do you have some that stick out to you that are like really good things and then some red flags? Sure. I I think, um, listen, I spent a lot of time when I interview people say, wow, that was the weirdest interview I've ever had, right? Because I'm not talking a lot on the first interview about what they did or how much growth they had here or there or anything. I'm trying to figure out who they are as a man or woman, what's important to them, how they're wired, right? What what defines success for them kind of thing? Because in the course of an ownership of a company, you're going to have up and downs, right? It's, it's like a venture company in that way, right? It's not all straight line to success. So you want to know who you're going to be working with and how they're going to operate in those ups and downs kind of thing. So I think the big thing is is trying to figure out what's important to people, right? Um, Because I don't think people change their spots necessarily, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. so those core things of who they are when things are tough, because they're going to get tough, right? How are they going to behave? How are they going to perform? To try to understand as much of that as possible, because then you can see, because listen, in the dating process, that's probably not a good term to use anymore, but everyone's trying to put their best foot forward. At least I did, right? Because I was a short, fat guy, right? So I had to put my best foot forward when I was dating. And uh, so at the end of the day, we all, you know, so you got to kind of try to look through that. And so what I look for is, hey, is what they're saying, is there proof of that, right? You say you have a great culture. Well, what are the proof points of that, right? You say you have a great sales process. What are the proof points of that? You say you have a great customer satisfaction. What are the proof? So I'm kind of a Missouri type, right? Show me. Um, so I think that, um, but, but I tell you what, I love is when there's a clear mission, right? That's the job of the CEO. You paint that clear, clear picture of where we're headed on these next three to five years together, right? And then get make sure everybody understands that. And then you back it up. What I like to see, they can back it up to say, okay, for this year, we're going to do these three things. And this is part of our Align operating room to help them, right? Because what are those most important things that move the needle? Let's get those done, right? Because when you get those done, everybody feels better because they were a part of that, right? So I like to see where teams think that way, because as you know, when you're having some success, that could also be the kiss of death, because then you start to think you can do anything. And if what I've seen, if you're not focused in the ability to make those hard calls to say, yeah, we could do that, but this one's better for these reasons, therefore we're gonna go here, right? And then be able to shut that off, because so many times, right, everyone wants to go back and try to do everything, and then pretty soon the team's so worn out and uh, tired of rowing that it ain't fun anymore kind of thing. So I think that I look for that focus, right? The ability to focus and do they really like each other? And this kid, not like him, like we're going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya all the time, because I'm not saying that at all, but they respect each other, right? And you can see, right, that that trust exists with them, because when the trust is there, then good things can happen. If the trust isn't there, it's just harder. It just takes longer and it's not as fun. 
Our next investor, Izar Armini, is a general partner at the VC firm Charles River Ventures. Isar has been featured on the Forbes Midas list of top tech investors in 2012, 2014, and 2015. He's been a lead investor in more than 40 founding startup teams. Isar is a six-time unicorn and a six-time decacorn investor. He's been involved with four multi-billion dollar IPOs, IBA, Virtu, RPX, and HubSpot. And here, Isar discusses a tops-down and bottoms-up approach to finding companies where he can make a seed investment. So many people or companies that are looking for that first seed investment. So how do you discover or what type of criteria do you have to decide, okay, this is the one I'm going to make a gamble on? Is that, is this Does this go back to the founder and founder market fit? Yes, but some other criteria. And you've had some fabulous VCs on the show. I listened to the Niraj uh, session the other day, and I think he gave a really good answer. Um, you know, for us, very practically, there is a top-down and bottoms-up approach. And it's probably half-half. So what is a top-down? Top-down is we sit in a room and say, okay, we believe in the next few years, the cloud will happen. I'm, I'm making things up. Right. And what areas are going to be fundamentally disrupted uh, are there multi-billion companies that that could be moved aside let's look for those companies and so we we kind of meet with many many companies for example we had a we had a fear about uh the call center industry that was very legacy driven it was very dr- kind of hardware connected to the telecom infrastructure yes we had some early wins there and we thought the cloud will will really disconnect telecom on the soft layer, let's look for uh, a SaaS. It wasn't called SaaS at the time, but a, a cloud-oriented. And and I actually worked on something that was okay, but not great. And a new uh, investor came to CRV and says, well, what are you working on, blah, blah, blah. I see on Twitter, there is something that everyone is talking about. It's called Zendesk. And I said, mm. I don't think Twitter is a good place to find companies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we have to listen to what it says. says so he contact that that team turns out it was a three person team wow wow they they lived in an apartment in denmark and they said venture capital we don't know what it is who are you are you going to buy software from us it's only 300 dollars <laughs> so my partner dev that's john whom whom you know yes i know that basically hopped on a on a red eye to copenhagen Knocked on their door at nine in the morning, wake them up, said, hi, I'm Devdat. And they said, you don't need to buy software. You can buy it with a credit card. And I said, no, I did not come to buy software. I can't <laughs> invest in that. Fast forward, uh, that became one of the very best next generation uh, help desk, uh, call center uh, software company. Uh, we bought... Uh, a third of the company for a million and a half as a seed investment. Uh-huh. I think, John, we had like $5 million in the company when it went public, not more than that, because they were so, the product market fit was so great. They never needed a lot of money. And we owned maybe 22% when it went public. Wow, and, congrats. you know, it, it reached public market caps as high as $15 billion. So that, that is the, 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 the kind of top down. You have a theory, you have a theme, you go look for companies. And, and, and honestly, in full kind of transparency, that is a better fit for slightly later, later stage companies, right? Because the market exists. Yes, it just correct. happens that Sandesk was, was successful before they raised any money. Um, more than half of their business is the opposite, is a bottoms up. No theory, no models, just get introductions from great people that you know meet entrepreneurs, then I really, really do look for that founder market fit. What did she do in her prior life that makes her an expert here? What insight does she have um, that that will um, make her like a great entrepreneur? And we make those companies and maybe our involvement with the HubSpot will be like that. We didn't have a theory about you know, marketing automation or inbound marketing that terminally don't exist. Ryan, you know, 
was just an amazing, amazing sales leader. Also, by the way, from PTC. PTC. Yeah, exactly. Right. Worked for me. Yeah. And uh, we, we actually got another person that we backed before, David Cancel. His company was acquired by Hotspot and we became shareholders. So it's both uh, uh, top down, bottoms up. Uh, the earlier stage you go, it's probably more bottoms up. If you skew as a venture capitalist, more Series B, Series C, it becomes mostly kind of top down. Listen, as Isar discusses a couple of common mistakes and an example of a success of early stage company formation. If you're trying to keep those early, you know, you talked about early stage formation of the company. If you're trying to keep them, you know, off the guardrails, what are some common mistakes that you see that some of the founders want to do or these, or are there certain best practices to keep the people and the founders, you know, within the guardrails? Listen, as Isar discusses a couple of common mistakes and an example of a success of early stage company formation. Well, man, th this is not a one hour conversation. <laughs> okay. So I, I pretty believe, good question then. <laughs> yeah, I believe that you actually don't learn much from your wins. You know, everyone brags and kind of have tombstones. Sure. I have tombstones. But uh, every success story is actually quite different and very unique. But if you are uh, honest enough to examine your mistakes and failures, you will find commonalities. Yes. It doesn't yes. mean that you'll not make no, no mistakes the next time, but at least you should avoid, try to avoid the mistakes you already made. And I've made many. And the entrepreneurs that I picked made more. Um, I think, so, so again, it's a long thing. Happy to kind of, but let me give you one or two. Yeah. I think the most common one is not waiting for strong product market fit. Trying to go too fast, right? Trying to scale a company too fast and spending too much money, right? Yeah. So especially if you are a first-time entrepreneur, you're terrified, justifiably so, from the VCs that they may not want to invest in the next round. So you try to create, get to a million-dollar ARR by brute force. And from there to $5 million, each of them is like a milestone, a million. ARR is for the A, $5 million is for the B, and so forth. And I understand that. I understand psychology very, very well. You have one bet. You want that bet to be funded. Yes. The risk is that you're going to put a lot of resources, time, money, people's effort, and something that is not quite right. You're going to spend most of that money for no, no result. So uh, the founder, he or she, or they, to be... Uh, thoughtful about the experiments they run and have a very keen ear to what the market is telling them and see the early signs of product market fit. Mm -hmm. I worked with this fantastic entrepreneur, David Cancel, yes. several times, but most recently in a company called Drift that you also, thank you very much, were yes. very instrumental in helping them. Um, and uh, there are funny stories there. Already knew the team. They were about to leave Housebot. It was very competitive. So I just took them to lunch and said, okay, you guys are going to do a company, right? So, eh, maybe yes, maybe no. We're not talking to VCs. Very, very guarded. So I said, okay, here's an envelope. Open the envelope. There was a $10 million check, real check from CRV. Wow. David and Elias new company. And says, why are you giving us money? We haven't told you what you're building. No, I said, I know, no, but it's an investment in people, right? So you got probably something in your domain, which is marketing automation. No, we can't take it. Said, okay, David, I'm going to leave. If you're not going to take it, it will be a very, very big tip for the waiter. And I don't think they, they deserve that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so reluctantly, I left. Reluctantly, they took the check. We got to be the, the first investors in Drift. But so they took the check, they took it. Hidden, hidden. And it was, by the way, he dictated the terms. <laughs> yeah. But it was all good. So, what was his, Isar, what was his rationale, the thought process of the, the founder 
Why was he hesitant? What do you think was going through his mind? You know, uh, Cap, by then he was well-known and successful. This would have been his fourth of his startup. He was the chief product officer at HubSpot. He was not a founder, but people do give him a lot of credit for the success of a HubSpot product engineering. So he could have raised money from anyone. Uh, he had a West Coast tour scheduled for Monday. I interrupted him on Friday. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, like he would, he would have taken the money. It wasn't that. But he was also kind of, hey, I'm not sure what I'm building. So after taking them, I said, okay, now, now we're going to think what we're going to build. And they worked out of our office. And David and Elias launched three products, working products. They had four or five engineers quickly building, uh, doing like, like uh, inbound marketing, all kinds of tactics to test. And they killed each and every one of them within like a year and a half. That was remarkable. That was such high discipline of an experienced entrepreneur mm. that knew that he was not hearing a strong enough sucking sound from the market for what he built. The first one, believe it or not, was a workday knockout, like do better HR. It was launched with several Boston companies. People liked it, but David did not think it was strong enough. The second one was an iPhone annotation. All of them were called Drift. <laughs> And only the fourth was this what drift content coordination, which is kind of a great way for uh, BDR, SDRs to capture leads as they appear on a website, engage with them either directly or via bot, and have like 25% higher conversion rate, which translates, as you know, for many, many dozens of millions of dollars of extra revenue. So uh, he really uh, was disciplined. I would say that's a rare story. Uh, and the risk, if we go back to your question, is that less experience or less disciplined founder will rush to get, I would say, vanity results in order to get the next round, which is not irrational. Okay, it's rational, but it's it's wrong. Yes, and, yeah. and the right way is to kind of be patient, work with your investors, make sure that they are patient, maybe that they have more capital to give you without any progress, which actually did happen at Drift, and, and only start hiring. You have to have executives. You have to have a VP sales, even if you're not selling, I think. Uh, it doesn't have to have a CRO title, but someone actually tries to. Uh, but but when you move to hiring a lot, like the, the full organization, as John, as you taught me very, very well, I know the ratios, you can test me, uh, managers, VPs, you know, SDRs, uh, SEs, you don't want to do that until you feel that you have strong product market fit, because that will translate into huge amount of doors wasted, maybe done round, maybe for sale, not good. Here, Cap asks Esar to expand on signs of product market fit in early stage companies. So Esar discusses land and expand, an increase in inbound leads, net dollar retention versus dollar burn, and accelerating revenue growth. Also, Esar is looking for a CEO that's a people magnet versus a people repellent. Esar, they they people throw around that. Um strong product market fit a lot. We hear it a lot on our podcast. Would you mind just like in your opinion, what is the definition of strong market fit, product so market know. fit? I don't, I don't know. Okay. I actually, in general, the more I do this work, the less I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to appreciate the kind of serendipity and randomness of all that, but there are, there are indications, right? So you, we all know them, the three of us. So uh, some of them will be uh, land and expand, right? Easier to land smaller deals, but they have like a natural way of expanding within the company. That's a very good sign. The next sign that I look for is like increased in inbound marketing uh, leads versus 
brute force leads. That's very, yeah. very important. You have to start, even the, the inbound, you, you have to prime the pump. We all know that. Like, it doesn't just yeah. automatically works. But if at some point there's an inflection point and people start talking about you on Twitter, like Xander's really good. or, or th- then, okay, okay, like maybe I'm resonating with something here that, that was, was needed by the market. And then I would say more like uh, mechanically measuring, but that's for slightly later stage companies. Uh, net door retention is a great indication of that. Yes. Great indication. And, you know, I think now like, like series B, series C investor will be looking for 120% NDR. So basically, and by the way, it also goes with at least 10% gross loss, right? So it basically means one year one, you sold 100%, you dropped to 90, but that 90 generated actually extra 30%, right? So it gets you to 120. Uh, I hope that people are able to follow my math. It's, it's, it's not that complicated. That's kind I of. Followed it. I followed it and I didn't have to take my shoes off or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I told you earlier, I'm going to repeat everything you told me and I'm going to very smart. <laughs> yeah. So NDR important. And, 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 and even, and we may disagree on that, even actually sales efficiency, right? So with money, and in the last 10 years, people have raised insane yeah. amount of money at very high valuation, so why not? With money, you can just cover a lot of mistakes. You can kind of have almost product market fit, but not right, no one will know because you're gonna, you're gonna put a lot of money in. You know, a very, very smart person once told me, very, very smart, the easiest sale in the world, if you give me two doors to sell a product that I need to sell for a door, that's very easy. Yeah, exactly. Right. That person's on the show today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if I take $500 million investment and I get to $100, 200000000 million revenue, that's pretty easy. <laughs> you can actually just do it with money. <laughs> Give a customer two doors and get the door back. <laughs> exactly. Go down on the street corner anytime and make that deal happen. So, yes. Yeah. So, sales efficiency, you know, people look at that as, as uh, you know, lifetime value of, of your software divided by cost of customer acquisition, many different ways. Uh, later, not early, later, it will be not a good number and it's, it's, it's okay. It should be like, we should overinvest, but over time to converge to something that looks attractive, like a four X or three X. And those companies, they're always around one, one and a half, two. You know that they actually have not hit product market fit. So mm-hmm. those will be some of the measures. But I, I, I admit it's not enough. Like it really is more about the management team and the founder gut. Like it's 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 a pattern recognition. It's not a formula that they hit a good nerve. And then Esar, you know, that's the the formation piece. You did go a little bit further with you know net dollar retention and stuff. But if we go back to the formation stage, and then you're helping this team out. You know, you have to prepare them and get them ready, as you explained. And some are doing, you know, vanity sales, as you explained also. So what what do you think that the VC that's going to come into the next round, what do they typically need to see? Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of well known, I would say. Um, you know, even from seed to A, People would like to see around a million dollar ARR to do the A. Uh, and that depends for a company that sells enterprise, it could be, you know, 10 customers, 10, 20 customers. Right. A company that sells like a uh, low, high velocity, low speed, there's more, but the million dollar ARR. And I think by then they would like to see signs that the founder, uh, he or she is, is a people magnet. Not a people repellent, 
<laughs> yeah. we, we, we speculate that they are, but we don't know because when we invest, it's just the founder founders. So an early sign of a management team, I would say people with a V title, not a C title, if, if you follow my kind of thought here. Yes. But evidence that it's a good team being formed. That's for the A. And then like a year and a half, two years later for the B, uh, you want to see a company. It's actually not so much the, the ARR per se. It's more like the growth. That's a company needs to grow at least 3x year over year from that low base. So it could be 5 million, 10 million, even three, depending. But you, you want to feel as a series B investor and investing in something that in the early stages grows at least 3x. By the way, that stage is very, 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 very hard. Yeah, it's very hard. It's probably the hardest. Like it's it's not that difficult to go and get a million dollar from a couple of friendlies. Yes. If you are yeah. a decent uh, uh, founder or salesperson, I think the next stage of, of that kind of more consistent and accelerating growth is super hard. Yes. So when that, those investors come to do the B or the C. They actually want to see pretty much a full management team. And that's that's really where we are supposed to earn our, our keep as early stage or formation stage venture capitalists. In this interaction, Cap asks Isar to expand on the key characteristics of successful founders and leaders. Isar gives us his six key characteristics, smart, energetic, ethical, courage, discipline, and humility. Isar, would you mind if we stayed a little bit on that subject? Because it comes up so much in the podcast that we do. Characteristics from your perspective right now that are very attractive to you as an investor. Characteristics uh, and attributes for the the most successful people that you've ever met. Um, not so much from the founder community, uh, but the when you go into the highly paid headhunter role, uh, and when you think about you know revenue builders, so to speak, what are some of those characteristics that you have just found to be just critical and have um, have remained critical over the years of all the years you've been doing this? Would you mind just spending a few uh, minutes? Yeah, talking I, lo- about that? I love that. Thank you. Kath, thank you for the question. I love that. I've been thinking about that. I've been changing my mind. I've been writing notes. I've been throwing them for, for you know, 25 years. Yeah. Uh, but I actually ran into the answer recently. Uh, and I heard it from an unexpected uh, source. I went to visit uh, one of our longest uh, limited partners, Mike Donovan. He's the chief investment officer. In the investment world, CIO is chief investment officer, not chief information officer, yeah. as we all know in sales. Uh, he's a dear friend. Uh, Notre Dame has supported us for 40 years. Uh, they are investors in the very, very best managers that you know. We are, we are lucky to be one of their managers. And I've asked him, Mike, like you're well known in the industry as a great picker of VCs. It's not salespeople, it's VCs. How do you pick them? It's exactly your question, right? Because yes. let's be honest, uh, the other way to think of venture capitalists is a money salesman. Yes. <laughs> they sell money. Right. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honest, humbling view, right? Uh, so I asked him the question, thinking it will help me also in my work and picking entrepreneurs and executives and leaders. He said, okay, we, we actually have a framework. We have six criterias. The first three are, are, are simple. We want them to be smart, energetic, and ethical. And I think that's kind of duh. Like, yes, like none of us have ever hired a person that we did not think was smart, energetic, and ethical. Later on, maybe it didn't work out, but we thought, we thought. Kind of table mistakes, right? But then he said, we also look for the three other criteria, which is courage, mm-hmm. discipline, mm-hmm. and humility. Uh, humility. Super interesting. Super interesting. So for me, in the context of venture capitalists, but also sales, courage is 
the courage of your conviction. You develop a conviction about a sales prospect, about a customer. It will, will work out, will not work out. It's going to do. And you get a lot of like opposition internal from the company, maybe from the client, customer, but you push through your conviction. You have the courage to risk your career, risk your job, risk your paycheck, but you, you, you have the courage to follow your convictions. I think that is a very, very important trait. Totally. Discipline actually goes with that, which is stick to what you said you'll do. Again, like you have the courage, but you have evidence that you may not be right. Uh, but you, like David Cancel in the example I gave, he promised himself he needed to do something and he had the courage to do that, but the discipline to kill three early stage startups, one after the other. And by the way, it, it was not without cost. Almost all the engineers left every time that they switched because they came to build an HR system. It says, guess what, guys? On Friday, we launched. This is Monday. I'm killing it. So, uh, we came to build a trust system. We're leaving. So discipline is very, very important. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and we get that. Humility, I think, is the most interesting one and the rarest. Because actually, in the real world, if someone is courageous and disciplined, they're probably not very humble. <laughs> because, you know, you need a little bit of sharp elbows and, and thick skin. But why do I, why does Mark Donovan and Ordain, why do I look for people that are also humble? I think if you're humble, it allows you to listen well and to test your hypothesis again and again and to admit that you might have made a mistake, you might be wrong and readjust. So I like that combination of, you know, smarts, ethical, uh, energetic, but also courageous, disciplined, and humble. And and when we get that, I think it's something magical happens. If they're humble, they're going to reach out to other people for advice versus if they if they're not humble, they think they know everything. A lot of times they feel, at least some people I've run into, feel like they have to be the smartest person in the room all the time. So they don't actually accept any type of you know, advice that they could get from others. And in a funny way, they are, they repel other people, other people then shy away and say, okay, this guy thinks he knows everything. So there's no need for me to speak with them anymore. Well, in technology too, Johnny, with humility, and I love what you highlighting this one, Isar, because the, the, the most elite companies today, they have no choice but to be masterful <clears throat> at, what the buyer is telling them and how the buyer is reacting to what they're doing. And I find that the, the most elite companies today are outside in. I also think humility is also an outside in mentality versus an inside out mentality. And that's a big one that we look at in force management. We go into these companies and we can tell when these teams are more inside out and they're missing a whole world out there of like, when we ask the question, yeah, but how does your buyer buy? You just told me what you've built and, but how are they consuming it? And what information are you getting back from the marketplace? So I think you nailed it with your, with your highlight on humility. I think it's really powerful concept today, all the way down the chain from a seller's point of view, from a founder's point of view, from an investor's point of view, from a seller's point of view. That's a real good one. Thank you for those. Yeah, we're doing a podcast, so your, your audience cannot see, but I'm nodding my head very violently. To yeah. <laughs> There's some takeaways from two venture capitalists and a private equity investor. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.